Welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. This podcast explores what it means to make life less difficult for each other and for ourselves. We share stories of struggles and successes because we believe sharing our stories eases the difficulty of life. I'm Lisa Tilstra, your host. Let's jump into today's conversation. My guest today is Eric Skinner. Eric began again at the age of 20, following a diving accident that left him paralyzed from the upper chest downward. Eric's post-injury journey required him to relearn most ordinary physical activities and to hone as strengths qualities of personality, intellect, and a renewed drive that would serve him during a new life of great challenges and rewards. After his accident, Eric earned a degree in marketing and communications and worked in the fields of advertising, publishing, and nonprofit communications. The highlights of Eric's life have been meeting and marrying his wife, Carol, and raising their daughter, Abby, together. Along with spending time with family, Eric enjoys reading, writing, and cheering his favorite sports teams. I met Eric through Elizabeth Tilstra, my guest on episode 41 and I'm so glad she introduced us. Eric's story will have you sitting on the edge of your seat and shaking your head in amazement as he describes his diving accident and the journey of healing and growth that happened afterward. As Eric and I initially connected by email, he shared some of the highlights of his story, and I was amazed. What amazed me even more than his story, however, was the fact that at the end of his email, he declared to me, that he didn't think his life and story were very interesting. I was astounded. And we actually talk about this in our conversation because I think it's a great reminder that each of us have amazing stories to share, but our own stories typically aren't very interesting to us because we're living them. So even in the case of Eric, who has lived for the majority of his life as a quadriplegic, he says, yeah, my stories aren't really interesting. (laughs) And yet I think that you will agree with me that they are incredibly interesting and inspiring. I hope that Eric's story will inspire you to share more of your stories because there's always someone who they will touch and in turn inspire, or at least just help someone feel that they are not alone. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for sharing these pieces of your journey. You give us all much to think about and ponder. I know we've barely skimmed the surface of your journey here, so I look forward to hearing more in subsequent conversations. Eric, welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Hello, Lisa. This is such a, it feels like such a privilege to have you on the podcast, and I love to just take a moment to acknowledge how we connected. And before we started recording, you were asking me, how do I meet all these people that are on the podcast? And this is one of the ways. So Elizabeth Tilstra, my sister-in-law was on the podcast and she reached out afterwards and she said, are you okay if I make an introduction? I know somebody who I think would be an amazing guest. And I said, yes, please. So that is how we originally got connected. Yeah, I am. I spend um, every Thursday or every other Thursday with your sister-in-law, and I have for about six years now. 
Um, She is my physical therapist and my confidant. She's my therapist. She is, um, I told her this one, one session that I said, you know, I believe you're about my best friend. And I think, I think it caught her off guard, but um, she's all that. And, and even more, she, she relieves, relieves my pain. And um, so we have a great relationship. We're, we're very close. And um, I wasn't too surprised that she um, recommended me to you because we know so much about each other's stories. Yeah. No, she's great. And for those of you listening, I'll uh, put a link to her episode. Elizabeth was on, I think, um, back in January, February this year, mm-hmm. and has such an amazing story to share too. And so, um, Elizabeth, hopefully your ears are ringing in a very positive way as we talk about you here. So, Eric, um, I like to ask my guests a specific question as we get started, and and then we'll jump into your story because there's a lot there. But um, this idea of making life less difficult, it comes from a quote by Marianne Evans, which is, what do we live for if not to make life less difficult for each other? And I like to hear from each of my guests, like, what what does this mean to you? Uh, Through my life journey, I found that uh, making life less difficult uh, comes in two forms. One of them is to um, allow people in my life to make life less difficult for me, Mm. Um, to open that door, to allow that to happen, because the willingness is there. Um, Oftentimes, the gatekeeper is me. And the other part of that is for me to be willing and open to ask others to make my life less difficult. And when you hear my story, I think it will make a little more sense that um, there are people in my life who are knocking on my door saying to me, let me help make your life less difficult. Mm. And um, there are also a huge, there's a huge, huge community in my life um, who would love to make my life less difficult. And if I would just open their door and ask, um, it's a two-way street, and it seems like it would be as easy as breathing to ask and to answer that call to make your life less difficult. But there's something internal that fights it. Um, I'm not worthy of that at times. I'm not worthy of that help. Um, when it's offered to me. And sometimes I feel like, boy, I do not want to be in that position. And I have been a quadriplegic for 35 years. You would think that picking up the phone or just simply asking someone in my presence, can you help me, would be an easy thing after all these years. And it's still something I struggle with, but it's something that I have to be reminded. I have to remind myself. I have to hear it from the people I love and who care for me um, over and over again. Um, please answer that call and please make that call to reach out and to allow folks to help me. There's so much in in what you're saying, Eric, that I 
I resonate with. And I'm so interested to hear more because your situation is unique in that there are physical, tangible, practical needs for you as a quadriplegic that demand some sort of external aid or assistance. Mm -hmm. And as someone who is able-bodied, I have more of like choice and yet I still struggle with that. And so that, so I, I'm, and I don't know if you want to say more about it now or weave it into your story, but I'm really interested in hearing your journey of stepping into this place of saying, hey, please assist with this, make my life less difficult here. And and, and also the struggle of that. Sure. Um, I, I, I think um, uh, my story of before and, and, and immediately after spinal cord injury um, is, a, is a great place to start. Uh, I grew up in a small town south of Nashville. Um, I was, I'm the middle of um, three sons. I'm the, I'm the typical middle kid. Uh, I worked all my life, all my young life, trying to be invisible and trying to get through life as easily as possible. I have um, a, a highly successful overachieving older brother so it was easy to hide behind his success mm. and I have a wild and um, impulsive younger brother <laughs> who's, uh, who's um, loud and, and crazy antics were easy to um, drown out my existence so I, I found comfort in being um, that prototypical middle kid who um tries to find um, that river to jump in and float along without a lot of effort. Um, I was a big, um, tall, muscular, strapping, athletic kid all my life, Um, very active, Um, a football player. I was a wrestler. Um, So being physically active um, was a big part of my life. Yeah. Um, and being one of three boys, we were always competing and um, the, the physical part of life was always was always uh, um, important to me. Um, I was also a, um, a, a, a C student in everything that I did, except for athletics, mm-hmm. which I did excel. Um, but I never applied myself um, in in studies um, never much pushed myself beyond the basics of just getting by and um, that comes into play after I broke my neck and um, had to take a different course Um, but I I was um, a sophomore in college I uh, attended the University of Alabama for uh, two years. And on May 14th, 1985, I guess that makes it almost 35 years ago, I, um, on my third day of my summer vacation, um, followed the girl I was dating to her home in, in South Alabama on the beach. And we um, connected with my college roommate for a warm um, spring day at his house at um, 
a little town, a, a little town called Point Clear on, on the beach in, in Alabama. And um, we packed our coolers and our blankets and uh, we're gonna spend time on at his beach house. And um, in Mobile Bay, which is the body of water that we were, we were visiting that day, um, each home, beautiful home on the beach had a long dock that went um, 75 to 100 yards out into the water. Um, so my experience with um, docks that went that far out in the water is that the water was pretty deep. So we packed our belongings into um, about halfway up the dock at an area where we where we laid everything out and got our food and our drinks for the day. And um, I got hot. It was, it was a warm day. And I asked my friend, um, do you, do you swim here? And he said, yeah, we do. And then I said, I'm getting hot. I'm going to go cool off. And I went another 50 yards to the end of the dock and I hesitated. I hesitated as I was standing over the water um, should I jump or should I dive? And I thought, well, I'm a hundred yards out, hundred yards out into the water. I'll dive, but I'll dive shallow, like a swimmer would dive off the docks, off off the blocks. Um, and um, I did, and apparently I did not dive shallow enough, and I hit my forehead on the sand, the hard sand. Um, I don't know if the water was four feet deep three feet deep it could have been a half a foot mm. um it was murky and um i had heard that that's that was a pretty common episode to happen that people did hit the bottom um but i was immediately stunned but not unconscious so i um found myself face down in the water um the murky water and um realized that something traumatic happened. I thought that I had a um, brain injury at first that because I could not move my arms and I was face down in the water um, floating. And I realized that I was in trouble. I begged God to help me. Then I begged my friend who was farther back on the dock to help me. And um, fortunately, I guess they both heard because um, my friend realized immediately that there was some sort of problem. Um, but during that time where he realized there was a problem and made it to the end of the dock to, to rescue me, I, had, um, I um, was conscious and trying to stay above the water floating on the top because I realized that if I um, exhaled, I would probably sink to the bottom and probably be pushed under the dock and not be seen by my friend. So there was a lot of peril. And I also realized that I had to stay calm. And it's interesting, and this is a, um, a common um, occurrence in my life when I have been in times of peril. Um, I realized, I, I told myself, this is not the way that I'm going to go. This is not the way I die. This is not the story of, of my end. And um, 
but looking back on it, who knows what the story of our end is. But I said, this is not the way it's going to end. Wow. And sure enough, it wasn't. Um, but I had taken in um, two breaths of air because I remember thinking, well, I can't, I have to breathe now. And I took in, took in a mouthful of air, coughed it out under the water, took in another, and then I woke up in an ambulance on the way to a, a small regional hospital emergency room in rural South Alabama. Mm. Um, I woke up in the hospital and my roommate and a paramedic had been sweating and breathing hard. And apparently they had been working to re revive me, to resuscitate wow. me. And um, so I went, I went blank again. I went unconscious again. And this happened one more time where I came to again. And they were breathing hard and um, crying and um, trying to figure out whether I was going to make it or not. I came to again on an exam table at a small regional hospital and surrounded by people I did not know. Um, a doctor um, asked me um, to blink my eyes when um, I could, he, he held up a, a blunt but sharp instrument and he said, I'm going to touch this starting on your chin. And I want you to blink your eyes and tell me when, when you can feel it. So he pushed on my chin and I blinked my eyes. I could feel that. He went beneath my jaw. I blinked. I could feel that. The middle of my neck. And I blinked. I could feel that. And he worked his way down to my mid chest. And then I realized that I could not feel that. And we knew then that, um, I knew then that, it was a neck injury and that I was in serious trouble. Again, I came to at a different hospital um, that was that was more equipped to handle um, the serious spinal cord injury that I'd suffered. And uh, the next um, several days were touch and go. My family flew in from Nashville. And um, they were gathered around wondering whether I was going to survive at that time. Um, I came to intubated um, in uh, traction. I had uh, a, a clamp type um, apparatus that um, stretched my neck so that it wouldn't compress anymore mm -hmm. and cause further damage. And uh, the, the immediate um, concern was my lungs since I had taken in so much water. Mm. You can probably hear in my voice that um, I take shallow breaths oh, quite often. So uh, paralysis is also a paralysis of the muscles in the trunk. So it's mm. difficult to breathe. So I had the compounded problem of having um, taken in all of that water and also having a hard time coughing and breathing. Yeah. So um, pneumonia was, was the first issue. And um, 
Anna beat it. Um, it was a tough ride there for a couple of weeks, but um, I um, I was moved from the ICU to a normal bed, and then it was time to it was time to um, rehabilitate. I was then flown to a um, spinal cord injury hospital in Atlanta. It's the um, largest spinal cord injury hospital in the world. Um, And that was, that was quite an experience um, because I went from this loving, gentle place where my family was always hovering around, um, caring for my every need and my, all of my emotional needs to large, what felt like an industrial complex. Mm. Um, filled with other folks who have gone through similar tragedies in their lives. Um, this hospital's, this hospital's, um, it was a place of tough love. Mm. They were very quick to say that you've had a spinal cord injury and you're never going to walk again. And over the course of the, the first 10 days that I was there, um, they threw that tough love at me in every, in every direction. You will not walk again. Um, your bowels, your um, bladder system, your fingers aren't going to work. Everything that I knew just a couple of months before was going to be different, was going to be changed. So I, everything was a blank slate at that point. And it was really tough. I, um, I guess the last grain of salt that, um, that this hospital threw at me was um, in a sex ed class that um, all the new patients went through. We had occupational therapy, we had physical therapy, um, we had every type of therapy, recreational therapy that you could think of, and then we had a sex ed class. And the setting of that was a medium-sized classroom where they filed in 20 or 20, 30, or 20 or 30 um, new patients to discuss um, what your once your life was going to be like from here on out, and the uh, urologist who led the class um, started out with girls. I've got good news: you can have children. Guys, I hate to break it to you, but you can't have kids. And that was that last bit of hard news mm. that um, made me fall apart. But you know, as a um, 19 year old kid having having kids was about the last thing that I thought of at that time. But for some reason, it was the last you can't wow. um, statement that that I um, it, it was it was that last bit of sand um, on top of me that felt like a boulder. Mm-hmm. Um, after that. I had um, fell into a deep, deep depression during that time. And um, I was surrounded by a loving and caring 
hospital staff. At that point, my family visited during the weekend, so I didn't have that family support that I normally had. Okay. And I reached out to um, open my life to um, the hospital staff that was there. And I had one nurse in particular during that time who, um, who was drawn to me, and I was drawn to her. And she cared cared in in a very deep and caring way and I remember after the um the class where I had um really fallen apart and had about as bad enough bad news as I could stand I can remember going back to my room and just falling apart and just losing losing it in a way that I don't remember ever losing it since and um and that nurse walked into the room when I was just in one of those ugly cries that we've all had at one point in our life. Um, and all she did was hold me. And that was the best medicine anyone could offer. She later told me that she really didn't know. She didn't have any words. She didn't have any advice. She didn't, she didn't throw anything at me that... Um, was trite because there wasn't anything that she could say. Um, she did exactly what she should have done at that point and just held me. And that was the turning point. Um, I, I was all, I've been off, often asked, was there, was there a time when you turned your life around? And I guess, or accepted the, um, this injury and this new life that I was, that I was undertaking. And I guess that was the point where I felt like I was at the rock bottom and I had to start climbing my way out. It's such a beautiful, a beautiful moment that you describe there, Eric. And it brings up, it brings up a lot of emotion for me as you share it, because I feel like it is just such a poignant example of what is the heart of this idea of making life less difficult. Like nobody Mm -hmm. could, fix the difficult situation you were in she couldn't say anything nobody could say anything to make you feel better or make any promises or whatever just holding you just being there just being present right it, it's so powerful and and i find it, it's it's almost easy to overlook about how much of an impact that can make in our lives um, what a what a, an amazing gift, a transformational really, gift that she gave you. It is. Um, we remain best buddies throughout my time there. I was in that hospital from early July to mid December. Wow. Um, I don't think folks are insurance companies don't allow that anymore. No. But back in the eighties. The hospital kept me for a long time because I did have some some toe movement um, and I did have do have sensation below my injury level. Um, So they held on to me, but I think they also held on to me because they saw um, someone who um, flourished in that in that environment, someone who had a lot of potential that um, they just didn't want to let 
Um, they wanted to help grow and help encourage. And, um, and they were right in that way. I, um, I ended up, I, I look back at, at my stay those months in that hospital as one of the most amazing times of my life. Um, a time, a real Renaissance time, a time where I learned, um, that where I had to, I had to look at the assets that I have, who, what do I have to work with now? Um, I can no longer, um, my, my fallback when I was floundering in college, um, previous to this was I can always go home and, and do physical labor. I can always build home and always, um, carpentry was something that I really enjoyed. I always thought, well, I could always do that and make a great living. And, um, and that was gone. That was gone. Education, um, was formal education. College was going to be, um, the direction I had to take. And it's something that I never applied myself Mm. and, truly didn't know that I could do. Hmm. And this hospital setting was a place where I could find confidence, where I could, could, could look for those assets that I have. What do I have to offer? What are my strengths? And also eliminate those things that aren't going to be a part of my life any longer. Um, it was, it was a, it was an important time for me and they prepared me as as much as you can um, because there were so many so many things I just I never thought there's so much that they could not prepare me for and um, during this during the time when I was in the hospital my father and my stepmother moved from Nashville to um, West Texas to the desert oh wow and um and that's that's that is such um, what literary what literary device am I trying to think of? Um, that is an analogy. That is a further analogy of of where I was mm. and what I had gone through. Um, I went from living in the hills and the trees and the the lush lush vegetation and rolling hills of Middle Tennessee. Um, before my accident and when I was discharged from the hospital I flew to um, the plains of West Texas Mm. Um, my dad lived and it was just like my physical life Um, my new environment was just as foreign to me Mm. as as paralysis was yeah Um, so I moved to West Texas to live with my with my dad, and I loved my dad. My dad loved me um, very much, but we were just so different, and we had such a difficult time communicating. Um, but he's he um, I lived with him for about six months until I was just going crazy and realizing and that dealing with depression because it, mm. I wasn't doing anything. Yeah, I wasn't progressing. I wasn't moving forward in my life. Um, I can remember there was a time we lived about an hour south of the city of Lubbock, 
Texas in West Texas. Okay. And um, it was time for me to find a, a doctor um, there in the, the hospital. And Atlanta gave some names of folks who specialized in rehab. So we drove that hour into Lubbock. My dad and my stepmother were with me. And we met with a, um, a general practitioner who's, who, who's specific, who um, dealt with um, spinal cord injuries and rehab. And Lisa, he might as well had a six gun on his hip. He was the epitome of a Wild West doctor. I'm so, I, I would be shocked if he didn't have um, red eye whiskey in his, in his desk. But um, we met with him and he asked me, Eric, what are you doing with your life? And I said, well, I'm thinking about maybe possibly, perhaps all those conditional words that I could throw out there. And he said, and he used throughout more expletives than I knew a doctor actually threw out. He said, no, you're going to school. You've got a great mind. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to call the Dean of Students at Texas Tech University, and we're going to get you enrolled right now. Wow. And my tough dad, who was a college football player, he was a business titan when he was here, who was the toughest man I ever knew, um, crumbled. He was not ready for me to make that big job. Wow. He was as much as I was not ready to make that big job. But an hour later, we were sitting in the, the dean of students office at, at a major university getting myself okay. enrolled in school. Wow. It happened that quickly. Um, and a couple of months later, I was, they were, my dad and stepmother drew, drove me um, to school and opened the van door and the ramp came down and it was time to sink or swim wow. it's the most terrifying time of my life it was well one of many mm. the most times of my life so i um i worked really hard i applied myself for the first time in school wow. and every every class every door that i had to open every ramp i had to find every curb cut i had to maneuver was a was a new and challenging obstacle mm. and it was also a, an exceptional accomplishment every little thing was a huge accomplishment yeah um again it was a it was a fantastic time and just like when i rolled into the hospital in atlanta it was a foreign place. I was terrified and I flourished. And going into the um, to school at the university, I was terrified. I had no idea what to expect. I knew that this was my big chance, possibly my last chance. I was going to have to make it here or um, who knew what the consequences were going to be if I failed. Um, that's a lot of pressure, but I did, I did really well. Hmm. Um, and there were, I can't tell you the challenges I can tell you, but we probably don't have time here. 
the challenges that I ran to ran into at um, at school, um, finding care for myself, mm. um, reaching out to people um, to help me out. I had to find a student to live in the dorms with me to help me get dressed, to help me in the bathroom, to help me with my shower, to help. Um, I had to find someone who was at the cafeteria to help me prepare my food, to help me. It, it was just a matter of, of learning to reach out and also to learn um, to accept others' help. And that, that's, where that pro, that's where the process began of being able to open up and, and accept help and to ask for it. It seems like an easy thing to do, like I said earlier, but it's truly not. It is truly not. But I graduated in less time than most of my friends who were at Alabama graduated. Uh Um, And I moved back to Nashville and uh, went into advertising. Hmm. Um, My uh, degree was in marketing and journalism. So I... um, I started out working for um, an advertising agency here in Nashville, which um, you, unless you own the advertising agency, um, you're not going to get rich. Um, <laughs> I, I worked at, as slave, la- slave labor at an advertising agency and learned so much about writing, about editing, about um, the business world in this exciting area of marketing um it was truly a it was an exceptional opportunity um but it um like all great things it didn't last when you when um an advertising agency goes through uh loses clients um they lose staff yeah Fortunately, none of us were fired. None of us lost our jobs when we lost big clients, but we did have our time. Our hours moved back, and I realized it was time to go to a um, a more stable um, a more stable business. And um, I worked for a large book publisher, hmm. um, a church church curriculum and book um, company, big publishing house here in Nashville, hmm. and um, learned, again, starting from scratch. I think that's, if there's a theme in my life, it's starting over hmm. and learning new skills and learning to ask for help and learn and learning to accept help. Um, but I, I work for a publisher, for five years. And then um, during that time, I, um, I met my wife and um, we um, had a whirlwind uh, romance and dated. And um, I suppose that's another story. <laughs> yeah. That's a big story. Were you working together or how did you meet? How did we meet? We met, I was living on the third floor 
of a condominium complex and she was living on the first floor. Okay. We had, we had seen each other. She was a um, sales executive at a uniform company here in Nashville. And she had lived here just a couple of years. And um, she lived on the first floor. I lived on the third and we had seen each other around. She's really cute. Um, I think she said that about me, which was pretty <laughs> surprising to me. But um, she was on a date on a Sunday afternoon and they were in the backyard of this condominium complex. And I was sitting um, on the third floor balcony reading a book and she and this this guy she was dating she or she was she had gone out with were throwing frisbee and I started shouting comments down to them like you've got an arm like a girl or what a weak throw and things like that and the guy thought man this guy is really funny what a neat guy do you know who he is and Carol said uh no, but I've seen him around. And the guy said, well, let's go and let's invite him down to see if he'll hang out with us. And well, I, I kind of gave him the hard elbow. And, uh, <laughs> he had to leave, but I, but I was, I was still just two, two floors up. So we kept seeing each other. We kept seeing each other around the condominium and at places around town. And one thing led to another, and we started dating. And um, very shortly after that, we we were married. Um, we will um, celebrate our thirtieth wedding anniversary um, in November. Ah, uh, congratulations! It's been wonderful, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. We have had, yeah. Um, I think it it surprises it surprises a lot of people when I tell that story about how we met because I think a lot of a lot of people assume that we were dating before my accident that we mm. knew each other beforehand mm -hmm. so Carol signed up for this um and and to me and I'm sure for, for most people that's a big statement she knew what she was getting getting herself into mm. she knew that I was going to rely on her mm. and she is far and away the strongest person I know mm. she is she was then there was never in her in her countenance there was never a we can't accomplish this wow. and that was one of the beauties that I found in her is that she had something that I didn't mm. um, you know one one example of that is um I had been driven around in a in a van with a wheelchair lift on it. I didn't drive myself. And one of the she asked me when we first started dating, "Do you think you can drive?" And I was like, "Yeah, I know I can drive." When I was in the rehab hospital, I I learned to drive. And she's like, "Why aren't you driving now?" I'm like, "Well, we bought." My dad is imp was impulsive and we needed a van and he bought one that couldn't be equipped for me to drive. And she thought, well, that's not an answer <laughs> to my question. <laughs> Why are you driving now? And I said, well, I, I guess I, I guess I just haven't thought about 
approaching that. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of um, problem solving that I'm just not willing to, to deal with. And she said, well, let's make that happen. Hmm. We went on our, we were on our honeymoon and in the Virgin Islands and um, we were picked up at the airport by a service that had these customized minivans and they were the small I, I beforehand I was driven around by one of the, a large raised roof tank of a, of a vehicle and Carol said this is the van you can drive huh. and the floors were lowered so I could pull my wheelchair right up under the steering wheel and she said you can do this and I instinctively said no way I can there's no way I can do that. But as soon as we got back to the States, she contacted the company and arranged to have a van customized for me. Wow. Um, she flew to Phoenix, Arizona to make sure that they were getting it done right. Mm-hmm. And we, she flew back, flew there, flew back. She was going to make this happen. And sure enough, um, we found an empty parking lot. She would give me the the wheel as soon as we got there after work every evening. And I was ready to quit almost every time we I started to get weak and um, had a difficult time with the accelerator. And, and she just never let me quit. Wow. And I drove for... Oh, 20 years afterward. Um, that's just one example of the way this woman says, we're going to make this work. We're in a bad situation now, or we can be in a better situation and, we, and let's get it done. Yeah. She just quits. She's that way now. She's that way. She was that way then. She has an energy and an innovative, an innovative mind that just doesn't stop. That's awesome. It's amazing that we that we found one another. It sounds like an amazing partnership that the two it of you is. have. It is. It is an amazing partnership. We both fill fill in. Uh, we it was interesting when before we were getting married, we took this premarital counseling, and we took our Myers Briggs test, and we ended up polar opposite. <laughs> and we thought this this is we're doomed this yeah how's that gonna work (laughs) and it has worked out it's worked like a charm every weakness that I have she fills it in every weakness that she has I dare to pick it up Mm. um it's worked out really well there's a man there's a beauty of that Eric that really I mean it it seems like the two of you it's it's interesting. I I can geek out a little bit on like the Myers Briggs and personalities and what makes us click in relationships and stuff. And it often seems like our weaknesses are areas that I, I can get defensive, right? If my partner or spouse like points out the weakness or I see it, I get defensive. And and there's such beauty in what you described of where yeah. when you can have the maturity to be like, hey, yep this is my weakness. This is your strength and vice versa. Wow. There's such beauty and maturity in that, that is much 
more difficult than it sounds, as you just described. <laughs> it, it is. And and there's also that there's also the challenge of not getting not falling into those ruts mm. of doing the things that we're best at doing and not challenging ourselves to mm. cross over and develop skills that that aren't as comfortable for us. An example of that is I the first time I had been balancing a checkbook since I was in high school, I knew how to do that. But I kind of would round up and round down. Well, my my wife is a she's an accountant. She, <laughs> she every every penny needs to there's square. no no rounding. And, <laughs> I um I rounded up or rounded down the first time and she's like, what have you done here? <laughs> It'll it'll even out. It'll it'll work itself out. You'll you'll see. And she's like, no, it won't. And I'm going to be in charge of this from here on out. So I have just allowed her to take care of all the financial needs of our family. Whereas I, she's a little less company being a little less comfortable being the face of our family and and being being that that person who speaks for us and who um um so that's that's the role you know I I I take care of the writing um and you know being that that the touchy feely kind of person where she handles the nuts and bolts in the background mm-hmm. and we both have to challenge ourselves to step into those other roles. Mm-hmm. It's very important. Yeah. It's yeah. very important, but we were um, back to that point where my life crumbled, um, and I learned that guys could not have children. Yeah, I was working at that publishing house, and um, I read a. Um, I was I was on the uh, mailing list from the the rehab hospital, and they would send their monthly um, magazine talking about the innovations that they, you know, just a normal hospital publication. Mm-hmm. And there was a little, there was a little blurb about um, breakthroughs in male fertility. And um, typical of my wife, she's like, let's look into this. Mm-hmm. Let, let's, let's look into this. So um, I, um, started making phone calls and I actually called the <laughs> and it, it, this is a perfect example of my definition of making life less difficult is I found the doctor um, who was a urologist in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the University of Michigan um, who was the pioneer in male fertility and spinal cord patients. And um, I had run into so many roadblocks in the hospital in Atlanta where I was and in hospitals here that I finally said, I'm just going to the source. And I called this renowned doctor in this field expecting another to in. Um, I talked to a receptionist who said, one moment and I was talking to this doctor and he said well I think we can help you and he said 
Ann Arbor is a little far for you to practically join us. So um, I do have a colleague who's in Louisville, Kentucky, which is only three hours, three hour drive here. So we met with him, tried out these new procedures that they said would work. And sure enough, um, we have a 25 year old daughter. Oh, amazing. The second great blessing of my life. Mm, that is amazing. Yeah, it's just, it's been one, one blessing after another. I. So I have a question. Yeah. It, you know, kind of going back to your experience in the rehab hospital where they really kind of came at you with all the things you couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And, and then your life experience of shifting, it sounds like there was a shift then to, okay, what you can do and your strengths and your assets. And then there's, there's also this aspect of challenging something specific. They're saying, okay, like you're not going to be able to have kids and then, you know, challenging that and stepping into it and going out of your way. How do you, how have you sorted through all of that? I, boy, that's a great question because I, I don't have the gift of persistence that my wife does, but I, I do have, I do have the ability to take the baby steps that it takes to get, to get from here to there. Um, I do leave those big challenges to the collaboration between my wife and and me. Hmm. We have to do that together. I don't think I can do that alone. Mm-hmm. Um, when they told me the things that you can't do, they were preparing me for the rea- for the reality of living life in a wheelchair and as a paralyzed person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the way I like to approach things, um, that hard love thing, mm-hmm. uh, even though I grew up in a household that was that was based on that that sort of thing my father was a adhered to it it was his his way of parenting but it was not the way i enjoyed hearing it hmm. um i had i had to be encouraged i had to find people in my life who could lift me up and help me make those things happen um I couldn't face those challenges alone. Um, I'm trying to think of examples of of that, but I think I the van was one. Um, my daughter's birth was another. It had to be a collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to become comfortable or more comfortable reaching out to others to find their support, to find their help to get their direction when I couldn't do it myself. And it's, it's still, it, it's, it's an everyday occurrence for me. What, what wisdom would you share with others who, who would benefit from reaching out for help? Right. And it seems to be uh, culturally, I've lived in a number of different countries. And when I, really like think about American culture. It's this culture of independence. I can do it myself. 
I shouldn't need anybody else. I should be able right. to do it all by myself. And I'm wondering what wisdom could you share, you know, to help others? I mean, whether whether it's a physical need or an emotional need or support or whatever that can help push us through that resistance to ask for I, help. I have found that whether it's at the checkout line at the grocery store, whether it is in the office workplace, whether it is in navigating the medical, um, the huge medical complex that we are, that we have to to navigate, there are always people who are willing to help. To to me, that's the greatest lesson I've learned that there are always people who are waiting to help. They just won't do it unless they're asked. Mm. That to me, and to me, even even now, it is the hardest thing for me to do. You think that it was an easy thing for me after thirty five years to ask for help, and it is just not easy for me. I don't know whether that's a cultural thing, whether it is human nature, whether it was the way I was raised, or a combination of all of them, which is probably what it is. It is so hard for me to ask for help, but it's, it's almost embarrassing to know that there are people who would love to help me. I have a cloud of witnesses who so adore and love me and would love to help. Mm. I just never have the courage to ask. It's, it's baffling to me to know why I don't do it more often because people are people are good and they want to help mm. and that's i mean that is to, to me that in every stage of my life in the hospital settings early on in college there were always people who wanted to help me with my taking notes who wanted to open doors for me college professors who seemed like really hard cases they were always wanting to help me um, assist me in any way so that I could grow and learn, um, and, and, and help myself along, um, co-workers, I, I, they are there. And it's just a matter of me making things, making my life less difficult mm. by asking them to help me along. Mm. What, what would be your advice to sometimes I talk to people and they're like, I want to help, but I don't know how to offer my help. Like, is there a strategy for reaching out and saying I'm available? I I wish I wish I knew that I wish I knew the strategy because I don't I don't use it enough. I don't use it enough. I had to a perfect example of that is 10 years ago I had a series of um surgeries that uh I had skin breakdowns on my back and I had to I had to stop driving mm. and I now understand why my grandparents were so reluctant to give up driving when family members asked them to, because it yeah. is, it's the hardest, it is the hardest thing, yeah. but over and over again, every person in my life says to me, said to me when I had to give up driving, just call me and I'll take you wherever you need to go. Mm. And I'm still so reluctant to pick up the phone and ask for help. 
when it's when it's there, but it's always there, and and it, there are so many people, and I I just know that I'm not the only person who has a huge has a huge group of people who would love to help, mm. and it just finds it so difficult to ask. Yeah, yeah. What? So I'm gonna. I'm just going to ask this question and see what it brings up for you. I mean, this is one of those areas where I feel like it is difficult. And I, and, and again, maybe it's cultural upbringing, whatever it is for those of us who have such a difficult time asking, it might never get easy. It might never get even just easier. You know, you've said 35 years you've been doing it. It's still really Mm -hmm. difficult. What makes it, what makes it just a little less difficult? Um, for me, I um, it, it it is a it is a true leap of faith. Hmm. It is facing it is for me. It's almost facing a demon that I have, hmm. and that it 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 is it is a requirement for my life to to get anything done is to pick up the phone, is to send the email, drop a text, and say I need help. I'm always met with a yes. I'm always met with a, not today, but how about this evening? Mm. It, it's, it, it is, and I'm always amazed that this person is willing to do that for me. Mm. And, but what I do find it afterward is they are rewarded as much as I am. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. There's always the reward. Yeah. People enjoy help. I mean, we all we all enjoy helping. I mean, it's, there's, there's such a reward in it. Yeah. As much as being helped. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting. Right. And it brings me back to the quote, what do we live for? If not to make life less difficult mm-hmm. for each other. And there is a reciprocity there that can be so beautiful. And that, really you, you know, your friends and family who are helping you are giving you a gift. And in this interesting way, you're actually giving them a gift by receiving the help. You couldn't put that in in any better words. You're absolutely right. I mean, that's that's truly the secret. That's truly the the secret of my life. That is truly the the point in my life. Um, yeah, you nailed it. You nailed it. Yeah, there's. Um... And, and it, I mean, I guess what's coming up for me is the the paradoxical beauty that comes from the difficulties in life. And when we step into those spaces together, mm-hmm. it, I mean, sometimes it sounds, I, I don't want it to become trite or anything, but because it deeply resonates with me, but it does make life less difficult. It does. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Eric, I am I'm so grateful for your willingness to share your story. I'm curious as you go back and you know, you shared with me before we started recording that you've you've spoken a lot, you've shared your story to a lot of different audiences. When you go back to the events May 1985, at this point in time, you know, almost 35 years later. Um, what's it feel like for you dipping back into those memories at this point in time? Well, I, that's a great question. I look at it as great accomplishment. I look back at those very difficult times, those huge challenges, 
as a, with a huge sense of pride. Mm. It's funny you asked that, Lisa, because I was, I was in a, um, in a kind of introspective period a couple of months ago where I was thinking about those specifics and, and all the, the challenges that I dealt with. Um, mainly in college when I was relying on student help, um, st- folks who didn't have a medical background, who didn't weren't trained at the hospital like my family was to, to care for me, people I had to train myself. And I was describing that challenge and all the things that went wrong. Um, having a roommate who was, who was hired to care for me um, in, our, in our dorm room, who shared a dorm room with me, who had a mental breakdown and walked out and didn't, never came back to school. And I was all alone there. Wow. Uh, or another um, roommate who um, we had a falling out and he just flat out left. And I was telling, my, I was telling Carol, I was telling my wife these these stories, one after another, after another of these hardships with a great sense of pride. And she told me that I had to stop talking about it because it made her a nervous wreck. It made her so sad. Mm. I was like, why are you sad? She said, because I wasn't there to help you. Oh my, wow. Um, and it, she, is, she is normally not moved to that level of emotion but it really upset her Mm. where I felt this huge sense of accomplishment Mm. that I had been in one of the frightening situation and overcome it Mm. Um, and counted on in, in every one of those situations. What I did is I counted on the love and generosity of someone who just happened to come by and say, well, I'll help you. Um, But my wife heard that. And she said, I wasn't there Mm. to fix things for you. Mm. And she was not only stressed out by it, that she wasn't there. She was emotionally just sad Mm. that I had to go through it without her help. Mm. Um, But but to answer your question, I look back at, at every step, every step of the way, when I'm talking about it with great pride. Hmm. Great, a great sense of accomplishment because it, it was never easy. Yeah. But it worked. Yeah. Yes. You, you know, Eric, I I I feel like we have only just barely skimmed the surface of your story too. And I would it love to uh, ex- so many stories. So uh, many terrifying stories that ended up being fun and we and funny. Um and yeah, we've just scratched the surface. There's so much to tell. Well, I would love to invite you back for part two. That'd be great. <laughs> and I also, I can't end this without taking a moment. Uh, if you would be willing to share a little bit about how you felt coming on the podcast and your um, the way you shared it with me in the email of saying, I don't think my life is very interesting. <laughs> And, and I ask you to share a little bit about that because I feel like this is such a, a common human response and your story, yeah. I know everybody that's listening is their mind's going to be blown that you would have this. I, it, it is almost 
when I start thinking about what it what what is unique in my life, I create this monster of there is nothing interesting about what I've gone through. And if if I don't dissect this life of mine, it seems like it's no different than anyone else's. If I don't get into the nitty gritty of the details of every step and every challenge and every every wall that we had to knock through to make things work, it seems like it's just a guy who went to work and came home and got up the next day and went and got and then came home the next day. And it just wasn't the case. Um, so when I was trying to figure out what I would tell you that would help make anyone's life less difficult, I thought, man, I have nothing to offer. My life is just as ordinary as anyone else's. But when I start telling the stories, um, it's anything but ordinary. And I'll bet, I'll bet that's not the first time you've heard that. It's, it's not. And I love the way that you shared that, Eric, because I think, you know, for each one of us, we look at other people's lives and we think, oh my goodness, what they have surprised, what, what survived, what Eric, what you went through, I could never do that. I, I wouldn't be able to, and I've had things that I've gone through in my life where people look at me and like, I, I wouldn't be able, to, I wouldn't be as strong. And mm -hmm. I, I say to people now, you you would be, and you have been, because right. each one of us have immense challenges, and they look different from the outside. I can't tell you how many times I hear someone who I I care for or love, or even a stranger who says, "You know, I'm going through this hardship, and I'm almost embarrassed to even talk to you about it because yours your situation is so much different." And and sometimes I want to just jump across the table and say, whatever you're going through is real, it's difficult, it's painful, it's challenging. You will go through the same steps that I did. It might be a different, the degree might be different, but what you're dealing with is real. Yes. What you're dealing with is is difficult and what you're and I, I, I truly hope that you look back as I've looked back and, and feel the same amount of accomplishment mm. in, in, in addressing it. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm serious. Let's do this again. Okay. Let's and, have, let's, um, and I will, um, I will write down some of the stories. So it'll remind me of, um, kind of the micro, um, examples of, of how, others have made my life less difficult and how I've asked them to make it less difficult. I look forward to that. Thanks for letting me do this, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.